Tonight, we're going to have our, I think I learned this, Mark, I think Clyde taught it to us in baby Greek, the antepenultimate sermon. What in the world is that? Well, the ultimate is the last, the penult in Greek is the next to last, and the antepenult is the next to the next to last. The next to the last of the sermons, messages in this series, is next week, and uh, Chris is going to take us into Revelation, and then I'm going to summarize in the last week. But over the past 50 messages, we've looked at the historical thread, the scarlet thread, the story of redemption. And last week we looked at John 3. Why? Because that is the knot that ties it all together in the Savior Jesus Christ. So far we've covered the historical process of God's redemptive plan. And what is that redemption? What is redemption? God's purchased us. He's bought us. He's redeemed us from what? Slavery. Slavery to what? Sin and death. Today what we're going to examine is the eternal nature of that plan. It's not a plan that God looked at the garden and he said, whoops, got to do something about that. He already knew that there was going to be a need. So in eternity this plan was covenanted. And you won't find this covenant of redemption articulated exactly that way in Scripture. You're not going to find that phrase. But there was an agreement between the Father and the Son, obviously, before He came to fulfill this plan in eternity. We're going to look at the eternal nature of, the, uh, of redemption. The identity of the recipients is what's really important tonight, I think. And I'll explain what I mean by that. But the identity of the recipients of God's redemptive plan, because it's kind of controversial. The passage that we're looking at tonight has been highly debated and disputed and argued about for centuries at least going back to Augustine, and I'm sure before that. And then we're going to look at how redemption then was accomplished. Now, we know that because we've heard the story unfold, but probably one of the best succinct summaries of God's redemptive plan is found here in Ephesians' first chapter. That's why we chose this to be the penultimate sermon. And then we're going to look, if we have time, at God's certain promise of our redemption being secure. So let's dive right into it. I'm going to skip the introduction to Ephesians, the first chapter. We did that in depth about four, five, six months ago. No, it was longer than that. It was last year when we did Ephesians. Let's take a look at Ephesians, the first chapter, beginning in verses, verse 3. First six verses. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely lavished or bestowed on us in the Beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now, 
a few moments ago, we heard from Colossians, another succinct definition of redemption. Uh, Sierra read it. And verse number seven, which we just read, is that verse to which I was referring a moment ago. That's probably about the most succinct definition of redemption, as we're going to find. So what's the context of this? You know, this is a key passage, especially for those who emphasize election and predestination. There's no question about that. Is election biblical? Yes. Is predestination biblical? Yes, it is. We are elect. Those who follow Christ are elect. And they're predestined. There's no question about that. Those are biblical concepts. Anybody who repudiates that and disagrees with that because they say that's what Calvinists believe and I'm not a Calvinist, then is not being biblical. Are there people that are not Calvinists that are biblical? Yes. But this is not a theological treatise. I, I, I think it's not a theological treatise that explains election and explains predestination. To find that, you need to go to Romans. That's not the purpose of this passage. And I'm going to refer to that passage in Romans tonight. The, the, the language here, the passage that we're reading and looking at tonight in the first part of Ephesians, really has to do more with discovering the identity of those who have been redeemed. That's what it's about. It's not about so much uh, election and predestination as a theological concept. It has to do with the fact that we are elect. It has to do with our identity. So the first part of our message tonight, I want to look at uh, who are God's chosen people, the identity part. And if we have time, then I also want to talk about how we know that we're secure in that. So who are God's chosen people, the elect, this controversial phrase that we find in theology? Well, you look at what we've read, verses 3 through 7, we see one thing that they're blessed. Where do we find that? We find it in verse 3. What is that? That's our heritage. Our heritage is to be blessed, to be a blessed people. A second thing in verse 4 is we're holy and blameless. So if you did a DNA sample and you took it down to the spiritual laboratory and you wanted to look at the DNA chain of God's elect people, what you would see, it's defined by two chains. You know how those chains come together in DNA and interweave. And what are those two chains? Holy and what? Blameless. We're also God's children. You know, there are many ways to describe our fundamental identity. One of my favorite expressions is, I'm God's child. There are other ways to explain it. But that's the way he explains our identity here. Our, our family name is we are God's children. We are Christians, yes, but that means that we are joint heirs with him and we're God's children. It has to do with our family. And then another characteristic of God's chosen people is that obviously, verse number 7, we're what? We're redeemed. We're redeemed how and where and through whom? We're redeemed in Christ. And that has to do with our status and our identity. So I want to take a look at those four things very quickly. Look at the first. We're blessed in verse number three. That's our rich heritage. We're blessed. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us. We're blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. This spiritual heritage that we have, this rich heritage, we are blessed spiritually. We are given these blessings by nature. That means that um, those blessings are incorruptible. 
They're not worldly blessings. They're eternal, heavenly blessings. By origin, where do these blessings come? They're spiritual blessings, so they come from whom? God through whom? The Holy Spirit. They're divine benefits. They're they're from God's very own holy nature. And by application, they're spiritual blessings because they're applied to us spiritually, to our spiritual being, to strengthen us within. And, And there are five of those blessings that are listed in the subsequent passage. And I'm going to read beyond verse 7 in a few moments. And when I do, you'll see the rest of them. But I see five spiritual blessings Spoken about in verse 3, but identified in verses 4 through 13. What are they? Take a look at them very quickly with me. Number one, the spiritual blessing of holiness. That's found in verse number 4. So God's chosen people are a holy people. Verse number 5, we're adopted. And it says as sons, but of course when we know this, it's talking about adopted as children. But children don't really define the relationship. Sons does. You might say sons and daughters. And I've said this before, but those that are female in this room are also sons. This isn't a gender thing, okay? So a second blessing is we're family. We're in God's family, verse number five. Verse number seven, we have been redeemed. Another way of putting that is we've been rescued. We've been rescued from darkness and brought into his marvelous light, as Peter tells us. And we have been rescued and freed from the bondage of sin and death. A fourth blessing is, and this goes beyond the passage we just read, we have a legacy. When you look at verse number 11, we'll look at it very quickly. We have an inheritance. Peter speaks about that inheritance that is stored in heaven that is imperishable, incorruptible, that is permanent. And a fifth blessing is found in number 13, and we are going to look at that if we have time, and that is we have the blessing of assurance. Holiness, we're in a holy family. We have been rescued We have a legacy, an inheritance in heaven, and we are assured of that by the Holy Spirit. In heavenly places in this first verse, the spiritual blessings, this phrase is unique to Ephesians. It's found five times, but you won't find it anywhere else in the New Testament. In heavenly places. What does that mean? With God, who is supernatural. He who governs all creation before time. Above all earthly influences, beyond time, beyond the cosmic forces that he created. So what that means is that the blessings that we have have originated in the eternal heart and being of God. And that means, and we'll talk about this at the end, those blessings are what? They're eternally what? They're eternally secure. They're in Christ, not just in heavenly places. This is a key phrase in all of Ephesians. And if you remember our study in Ephesians about a year ago, we mentioned it at that time. You find this phrase in Christ 11 times in the book of Ephesians. It's not unique to the book of Ephesians, but it's a key phrase. What this means is that Christ guards these blessings of the elect. And where does he guard them? Is Christ physically present somewhere? Yes. Where is he physically present? at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. And there he guards those blessings that have been given to us, and he has secured these blessings. So we think of those blessings as being spiritual. We think of them as being eternal. We think of those as being out there somewhere. And we're going to have those blessings someday when we get to heaven, but that that falls short of the story, the complete story. Where did he secure those blessings? He secured them on the cross when he shed his blood, and he... He made them absolutely permanent and secured them in his resurrection. Where? Not in heaven, but where? On earth. 
He earned those blessings for us on earth so that we might begin to enjoy those blessings when? Now. We don't wait until we get to heaven to enjoy those blessings. We enjoy them now. He has entered heaven to secure and guard them. That's true. But he wants us to enjoy them now. And it's for those who are in Christ, verse number five, those blessings come to those that are in Christ that are chosen, that are elect in him. And so what should our response be here in verse number three? It says to do what? How does it begin? Bless God, just as Paul has done. We bless him for the blessings. We receive those blessings for two reasons. How many times have we said this? You know, when you look at the Beatitudes, we bless them in order to what? Bless others. But when you look at 1 Peter, he also says, being the priesthood of all believers, we then are responsible for what? Lifting up spiritual sacrifices to him. And when we do that this morning as we worshiped him corporately, when you go into your private prayer closet, when you have devotional time with him, when you walk with him, when you're driving down the road and you're talking to the Lord, you're also blessing whom? Him. We have a responsibility to bless God. It's not just he who blesses us. We bless him. We're sort of like a mirror. We're sort of like an echo. We're a blessing echo chamber. We, we bounce it back to him. And the second thing in our spiritual blessings and our identity is we're holy and blameless. This is our DNA. Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. That's our DNA. Those are the two strands. Chosen before the foundation. What does that word chosen mean? What's the key? What, what, what is it? Chosen. What's the, uh, what's, the, what's the adjective that parallels chosen? He did what? He chose us. The verb is eklekomai. What does that sound like? Eklekomai. Elect. There's the word. There it is. There's the boogie word. <laughs> you know, It means literally he spoke out. He picked out. God made a conscious decision not after the foundation of the world, but before the foundation of the world. He made a conscious decision to choose us according to His will. That's biblical. Before the foundation means in eternity, before creation, before all time. And folks, this doesn't just cover the past. It doesn't just cover now. It also covers the future. Eternity goes beyond time. So this is also a future promise. It means, once again, that the blessings of being holy and blameless are eternally secure. Now let's talk about that chosenness. Let's talk about the election. Our election is where in this verse? Just as he chose us, where? In him. Jesus is the person, but he's also the location before the foundation of the world. You know, the two views of election, here we get into it, and we have to, okay? Some would say that God looked out there and he chose individuals. He chose Jonathan and Mark and Marcy and Jennifer and, yeah, even Jim. He chose chose you too, Patrick. I think. No, yeah, he he, he chose us. Individual. Some would say, okay, he looks out there and he chooses you individually um, to be in Christ. Okay? That's one way of viewing it. Another view is that God chose Christ as his elect. That the focus of election is on Christ himself. Hmm. 
So what is the role of faith? And I'll get back to that in just a moment. What's the role of faith then? The elect are those that trust in Christ. Okay, let's talk about the Calvinism and non-Calvinism thing. I'm not going to say Calvinistic and Arminian, okay? Although Arminians are not Calvinists. But there are folks that are not Calvinists that are not Arminians too. Is that confusing? Okay, no. I are one. But any, oh, I shouldn't have said that. I've given away where I am, and I will in just a moment. But we need to deal with this right here because it is a controverted text, okay? There's no dispute between Calvinist and non-Calvinist about this. Those who believe in Christ that are in Him are what? They're elect. There's no disputing between those. The question is, who can be in Christ? Who can trust Christ for salvation? And that's the real issue here, okay? The Calvinist will say this, that only those that God gives the grace to believe unto salvation can be saved. In other words, we're all unregenerate. We, have the, we don't have the capacity to believe unto salvation, okay? And God regenerates some people's will that he chose from eternity beforehand, and he enables them to believe unto salvation with saving faith. So that, you see, this view says that faith Believing faith, uh, saving faith, is a result of being elected. Okay, and there are a whole host of people in Baptist life that believe that. Okay, on the other set, on the other hand, the the person that's not a full going Calvinist, a non Calvinist, says that he gives that kind of capacity, that kind of ability to unregenerate people. He gives that capacity to everyone. Everyone's unregenerate, and he gives the ability to believe unto salvation to anyone. And those that choose to believe are elect. So what's the difference? On the one hand, this believing that is unto salvation, this saving faith, is a what? It's a result of being elect. The other approach is it is a condition that is fulfilled for election. That you believe, and then you become elect. What's my personal view? I'll tell you. I believe that Christ is God's elect. Okay. I think the implications are very strong in this passage, but you have to go to Peter to see what I'm talking about. In 1 Peter 2, it says, we come to a living stone. That living stone is elect, is chosen and precious in God's sight. 1 Peter 2, 6 goes on to say, he is the elect, he is the chosen cornerstone. And you put this, these ideas together with the implications that we see from Ephesians here being in Christ, I think he is God's elect. You see, my opinion for what it's worth is that he chose Christ and those who believe in Christ then participate in his election. Now, what I have to be careful about here when I express my personal opinion, and you may not agree with that, and many people don't, okay, is that is still based on his will it is still based on his conscious decision in eternity to choose me based on what he knows I'm going to do and that foreknowledge. And it is not, it is not, I'll say it again, it is not because of anything that I have done that I have worked. You see, my believing is not a work because my believing is something that God gave me as a gift to exercise. And I understand that there are people that disagree strongly with this. But like I said, Ephesians really isn't, I think, here a treatise on predestination and election. It doesn't parse it. 
Uh, Paul's purpose here, whatever you believe, whether you believe the more Calvinistic approach or the less Calvinistic approach, this is not a doctrine of predestination here. What he's talking about, what's important is he's talking about the identity. He's talking about those who are elect, however we got there, okay? And it is to assure those who trust in Christ, if tonight you trust in Christ, you know that you're elect in Christ, okay? You don't have to question that. You don't have to doubt that. You don't have to wonder how all the mechanics of that worked, whichever side of the fence you're on. That's my point. The key point of the verse is to describe the blessings and the assurances. And the ultimate blessing of election is this, that we have been, you look at verse number 11, we'll get to it in a few moments. The ultimate blessing is that we have been forgiven. We have been redeemed. So no matter how much people debate about election and predestination, the fact of the matter is, if we trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, and if we're in Him, we are elect. There are two products of redemption. There are two blessings of election that are found in this verse, and it's what? Holy. Holy. Uh, It it elaborates on the meaning of, of the saints that was addressed in the earliest part of the letter. We're called to behave in a holy way and to be identified with those saints that he addresses in verse number one. We are saints. We're blameless, without blemish. Christ offered himself as a sacrifice, Hebrews tells us, without blemish. The only sacrifice that is perfect. The only sacrifice that was capable of redeeming us from sin and death. And then what has happened? He has redeemed you and you and you and you and you and you. And we come together and we choose to congregate together as the what? Body of Christ. And so the body of Christ is God's elect. He's his, or she, is his chosen bride. So we're part of his glorious church. And the implications of that is, it's not just that we have individually been called to be holy, individually chosen to be blameless, but the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, is to be what? Without blemish, Ephesians 5. Hmm. We're next God's children, verse number 5 and 6. This is a family name in love. You see, it begins actually before, before verse 5. <laughs> it's one of those things where when they inserted the verse divisions, they put it after in love, but it really belongs with the next phrase. At the end of verse 4, in love. In love he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved It begins with love and it ends with love. In love and it ends with the beloved. You see, we're his children. In the context of predestination, what does that mean? Again, this statement is not, I think, a theological treatise and systematic doctrine about predestination. But it's to show his motivation and redemption and his purpose. His motivation, what motivated God in eternity to look out there and to choose me to be his elect, to choose Alice to be his elect. What motivated God to do that? What does it say at the end of verse number four? Love. Love is the motivation. It's rooted in identity as, as his being our father, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, he chose us from eternity because he loves and he demonstrates his love. So this isn't a passage about judgment. This is a passage about being chosen to be loved. It's not because we loved him. It's because he first 
loved us. And when did he first love us? When did he first love us? Before the foundation of the world. Not only before you were born. (laughs) He loved Jeremiah before he was born. He knew him in the womb, but he loved Jeremiah (laughs) in eternity. You see, so it's not because... If if a person is not elect, okay, I think what we would have to conclude from this, at least according to my understanding, is if a person is not elect, it's not because God has not loved. God loves every person ever that has been born on the face of this globe. It's not because he doesn't love. It's because that person has not chosen to do what? To trust and to love God. So the motivation is love. The purpose is adoption. Mm, to be brought into the family of God, by God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to bring us into his family. So here's what we need to do, I think, for just momentarily to see how this predestination works in the context of the family. And I think that's critical. And when we look at Romans, the 8th chapter, it begins, predestination begins with foreknowledge. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to what? His son's image. In Christ. You see, this fits the context of Ephesians 1 perfectly well because verse 4 says that we are chosen in Christ. We conform to that image. We're adopted as sons, children, through Christ in verse number 5. So we conform as adopted sons and daughters to the image of God's Son. Predestination in Christ, then, in Christ, if we look further in verse number 30, results in three things. And I'm talking about Romans 8, okay? Those he foreknew, he predestined, he, he called, and we have a choice to respond. Then those whom he called, he justified, which he does how? Not through what I do, not through my believing, okay? But yes, we have to believe in order to claim that. But we're justified, Paul tells us, through Christ's blood here on earth, and then glorified, we will receive the spiritual blessings in heavenly places. What Paul is emphasizing in predestination there is not the choosing, the timing. What he's emphasizing here is God's grace. You see, in verse number five, you see God's grace, don't you? It's not our work but by the kind intention, not of our believing, but the kind intention of what? His will. In verse number 6, for what purpose? For the glory of His grace. So when we're chosen in terms of predestination, it's to bring us into His family because He loves us and because of His kind intention. And we become children adopted through Christ, bestowed in Him. Christ is a primary agent then of this adoption. For those who are chosen in Him, it says in verse number 4. Christ is the instrument through which we are adopted. Okay, Ephesians 2. We're saved by what? Grace through faith. Not of works, lest any man should boast. And not of ourselves, it's the grace of God. So God empowers those who believe in Christ to become his children, we're told in John, the first chapter. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
Okay? But to those who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave those the right, the power, the authority to what? To become children of God. This is in Christ. Christ is the means we see in verse number six for this being adopted, which he freely bestowed on us in his beloved. He loved us and he chose us because we have believed in him and it comes through his beloved. You know, this biblical concept of adoption we covered not long ago in one of our previous messages and the, uh, the scarlet thread. You know, this is Israel portrayed in the Old Testament. He adopted Israel to be his children. In the New Testament, this term adoption is used only five times in Romans and Galatians elsewhere. And you remember that in Greco-Roman culture, what this means. When one was adopted, like Augustus or Tiberius or Caligula, it was permanent. It could not be reversed. It gave that person full status in the kingdom and full authority in the kingdom, and it gave them an inheritance in the estate. So when it says that we are adopted, those same things apply to us. It gives us full status in the kingdom. It's permanent, something that cannot be taken away, and it grants us an inheritance that is preserved in heaven. And the results are we become part of God's household. So this is one of those blessings. We become part of God's family. You believe in God, you believe also in me, so don't worry. I go to what? Prepare a place for you. Where is that place? It's not just in the house, it's what? It's in the Father's house. If it were not so, I would have told you. We are, in, we are uh, predestined for that inheritance, we find in verse number 11. In heavenly places reserved for us in heaven, Peter tells us, it's imperishable. And we're fellow heirs with Christ in Romans 8. So what should our response be about this being predestined and elected to be adopted as children into the family? What should our response be in verses 5 and 6? We should do what? It says to praise God. And then finally, in this identity, we see that we're redeemed. We're redeemed in Christ. In him we have redemption, in verse number 7, through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. And we have to go on into verse number 8, which he lavished on us. This is probably, I think, the most concise statement about redemption in all of Scripture. Who is the person of redemption here? We're redeemed what? In him. Who is that? In Jesus Christ. So one of his titles is, he's Savior, he's Lord. What's the R word? He's Redeemer. The person, what is the process? The process is redemption. What does that mean? It literally means to be released. To be released from captivity because what has been paid. Do not say that the Son of Man comes to be served. The Son of Man comes, what? To serve and to, what? Be a ransom for many. So this idea of redemption is one is in captivity, a ransom has to be paid, and when the ransom is paid, the person is released and delivered. That's the process that we're talking about. This thread, scarlet thread, is about that. When Adam and Eve sinned, and afterward, because of our own culpability, each one of us, are sinners, and we are then ensnared and captive to sin and death. 
and redemption releases us by the ransom of him who has done it and redeemed us. What is the power of this redemption in this phrase? In him we have redemption, what? Through his blood. We know this from the Old Testament, but the author of Hebrews tells us very clearly. Without what? There is no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. John tells us in 1 John then, the blood of Jesus then cleanses us from all sins. Peter goes on to tell us then that the, this blood ransoms us from the futile ways of our fathers, sets us free from those. And the author of Revelation, John, before he actually gives us then the message from Christ himself, says his blood frees us from that sin, and we are justified, Paul tells us in Romans 5, and freed from the wrath of God. What about death? Freed from sin, what about freed from death? Is there power in the blood of Jesus to free us from death? Absolutely. For the author of Hebrews tells us what? Christ's death did this. Christ's death destroyed, destroyed the one who has power over death. Now, he's still around. That is a past tense usage which is predicting a future action. Christ's blood destroyed the one who has power over death. And who is that? Satan. He's already defeated. So there's power in the blood as we sing in our hymn. The product of this redemption is the forgiveness of our trespasses and the source of this redemption. We think of the source being Jesus Christ, and that is true. But this is according to the riches of whose grace? The Father's grace. So it was the Father's grace. It was the Father's love, motivated by love, that he sent the Son as Redeemer then to set us free. And it gives us a status and an identity. What is the status? We are redeemed. We're free. We're no longer in the jailhouse of sin and death. We're no longer enslaved. And what is the identity in this passage? We are in Him. We are in Christ. So all of these blessings we see we have received then through this thing that we've been talking about for almost a year, the scarlet thread of redemption. And then very briefly, verses 8 through 12, verses 8 through 10, we see the revelation of God's plan. This, this was hidden, but it was revealed and it was summed up in Christ. In all wisdom and insight, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things on earth. So what he's talking about there is the revelation of the plan through the person of Christ and the work of Christ. And then the purpose of God's plan is revealed in the next couple of verses, at the end of verse number 10 through 12. The purpose, what is the purpose of this whole plan? What's, what's the purpose of all of this? In him also we have attained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, to the end, we're getting there, the purpose in the end, that we who were the first hope in Christ would be what? To the praise of his glory. The purpose of all of this is to glorify God. We talked about that this morning. Jesus said, you know, I didn't come speaking my own words. 
I came speaking the words of him who sent me. And I also did not, you need to watch when people speak. Why are they speaking? Are they speaking to bring themselves glory? He said, I didn't come to speak my own words to bring glory to me. I came to bring what? Glory to the Father. And if he came to bring glory to the Father and he came as Redeemer, it sums it up right here. He did that for what purpose? To glorify the Father. This whole redemptive plan, friends, is not about us. We thought all this time it was about his rescuing us and saving us. Well, yes, we're the objects of his love. But the whole purpose, folks, is that God will be glorified. That's why we bless him and praise him. Okay, I think we've got time to do the last part. So what about the assurance of all of this? What about the assurance that we have of redemption? Look at verses 13 through 14. In him, there it is again, in them you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of your inheritance. Boy, is that sealing? Sealed by the Holy Spirit, given a pledge of our inheritance with a view toward the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His what? Of His glory. <laughs> you see, this, this part tells us that we are safe in Christ, we are secure in the Spirit, and we are assured by God's pledge. Let me summar, summarize it this way. Verse number 13, we're safe in Christ. In Him, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your, what? Salvation. Having also believed. We think of salvation as being a thing that we have and a state of being, and that's true. We're saved. So we're no longer condemned to eternal death. We're saved to eternal life. That's salvation. But there's something else about salvation. We're safe. We're safe from the wiles of Satan. We're safe from eternal death. We're safe from the necessity of sin. Even though we sin, we know that if we ask for forgiveness, we are forgiven and cleansed of our sin. But in that word salvation, we're promised that we are safe in Him. Secondly, look at the next verse. Verse number 13. You were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. What does this say about your redemption? It is secure. So not only are you safe, but your redemption is secure in the what? In the Spirit. You're permanently safe in Christ. If we look at chapter 4, verse 30, it says that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit until the what? By the way, has redemption finished yet? No. Redemption isn't finished yet. Does the world still groan to see it fulfilled? Paul tells us in Romans, yes. Sure. What he says then over here a little bit later, chapter 4, verse 30, look at it. We are sealed by the Holy Spirit until the what? Day. Of redemption when it's all going to be brought, brought to a conclusion. We're hidden. We're hidden in Him. It's sort of like when they seal Christ's tomb, the same word. It's, it's the word that means we're almost asphalted in. Colossians puts it this way <laughs> For you died, and your life is now hidden in God. 
We have been marked. We have been sealed. A seal has been put on us. Very much like the container. The door is shut and the seal then, and it's locked, and then a seal is put upon it. We have been marked. 2 Timothy 2 says this, The firm foundation of God stands having this seal. The Lord knows who are His. We have been sealed by the Holy Spirit and authenticated. You see, John heard, heard, heard this, John the Baptist. And he says near the end of his ministry, before he is executed by Herod, he said, God has set his seal on this and God is true to whatever he says at the end of John 3. So in every respect, we have the seal of God's promise that this redemption is permanent and secure, and we have the security of the spirit of, of promise given to us. And then finally, we see that we are assured of God's pledge. Who is given? Who is this who is given? In verse number 14. Who is this that is given? In verse number 14. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of His glory. The Spirit is given as a pledge. This is God saying, here, I give you the Spirit of truth. I give you the Spirit of comfort. I give you the Spirit of encouragement. I give you my presence as a pledge that what I have promised will, in fact, be fulfilled. Hmm. The pledge is God's down payment on the future. It's his earnest that he will fulfill his promise. Our inheritance then is secure because it is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Our redemption then. Hebrews 9.15 kind of sums it up this way. If we are in him, we have this promise. For this reason, he is the mediator, Christ, of a new covenant, so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of the transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called, the elect, may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. So, we have become God's own possession, and we are promised then, that he will, in fact, redeem us in the end. So what is this pledge made by the Holy Spirit? If we trust God, we become God's own possession. If we believe in Christ, we are found in him, and he will apply our redemption from sin and death and grant us an eternal inheritance as joint heirs with Christ. The Holy Spirit is not only the one who says that this will happen, and has revealed it in his word, but the Holy Spirit is the earnest, is the down payment. And the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life is that which communicates to you whether or not you're redeemed. You know, all of this debate about who is elect and who isn't elect and how one is elect, it's something of a mystery. And there are people that disagree with my particular approach to explaining election. But there is this assurance. How do we know? You know, in the early 18th century, mid-18th century, 
There were some Calvinists that had a great deal of problem, high Calvinists that had a great deal of problem in searching and trying to discover whether they were elect or not. That can happen. If you, put, if you push Calvinism too far, too high, it gets to the point where you say, well, God does it all. I can't know whether or not I'm elect because he did it all. You see how that can happen? If you push it too far the other way, I believed, I believed, I believed, then it becomes a what? A work. So these two views kind of meet in the middle. And as much as theologians have debated this over the ages, I've come to this conviction. You know, whichever side of the theological spectrum you're on, there's one way that we know for certain that we are elect. What is it? The Holy Spirit. So you see, when he talks about the seal of the Holy Spirit and the pledge of the Holy Spirit and the, and the Spirit being the Spirit of truth, you know what Paul says in Romans, don't you? The Spirit of God bears witness to our spirit that we are God's children. And therein, the Holy Spirit seals the certainty of that knowledge that we are elect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that not because of anything that we've done, not because of our work of faith, we thank you that you have sent your Redeemer, Jesus Christ, to set us free from sin and death. You've given us the ability to believe in him and to trust in him. And that you've given us the promise that if we have done that, if we are in Christ, then we are, in fact, elect. We, in fact, were in your mind. We were your conscious decision according to your will in eternity. That you knew that we would come to this point tonight. And there would be some who maybe were laboring with that decision. The decision isn't, am I elect or not? Tonight, if they're listening... The decision is, do I trust in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior? Am I in Him? Is my eternal destiny secure in Him? And if that person trusts and believes, they are in Christ and they have a place in your house. And for this we give you thanks. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.